0: Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge by, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, again, it's a a joy to be with you all this morning. And uh, I want to begin by asking if you're a college fan, any college basketball fans here? Some of you, yeah? So you know the last couple months have been an exciting time, right? For those of us who are not, uh, those of us who are not college basketball fans, uh, there was this big thing in March that everybody goes crazy over. uh, And the church I'm at, our session, the last two years, uh, we've done brackets as, as, as a session, and, and like I said, I, I don't know the first thing about doing brackets, but uh, I find them fun because I like to uh, try out different strategies of knowing who to pick. And my strategy is more of like a just point-and-click strategy. Uh, this year, what I thought I would try to do is in the, I think in the West is where I, I did it, I chose all the lowest numbered seeds, and then the highest, and then the lowest, and, the, and any basketball fans in here are probably going... You're crazy. Like, that's so stupid. Uh, in the East, I did it the other way around. All the, all the highest-seeded teams, if I would have flip-flopped, I probably would have done actually pretty good, apparently. Uh, but I was out by the second round. Um, but the, the, it's just fun to do, right, and, and something to do. And basketball can seem like one of those sports that is pretty straightforward, right? Like, you can, you, you can understand. It seems pretty easy to judge. Did the ball go through the hoop or not? Yes, okay. You scored points, right? That seems pretty easy, but it really it really begins to get a little more challenging to judge because was their foot over the line or not? Was there a foul or not? And before long, argument begins to ensue, right? Discussion begins, well, they, they wouldn't have won if the ref would have called that foul the way that he was supposed to, right? They wouldn't have won because his foot was over the line and that was not a three-point shot. And before long, we begin to argue through the minutia, through the details, through the minors to prove our larger point, but we really miss the larger point. We miss the majors, Before long, we major on the minors and we miss the major. And in today's passage, we see this played out in multiple ways as Jesus heads into town, into Jerusalem. But before we dive in, let me take a moment and pray for our time together as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you have revealed yourself to be. In you is perfect holiness. And perfect love. Through your amazing wisdom, you would show patience to a sinful and dying world. And in that, then send your one and only son. And as your word tells us, would give his life up for us while we were still sinners through Jesus' perfect life and perfect righteousness given to us in exchange for our imperfect life and self-righteousness, we are reconciled to you, Father, the God of new beginnings and fresh starts. Lord, as we approach your word today, I often pray, I pray that your word would do what you promise it will do. May you teach us, may you train us May you rebuke and correct where we need to be rebuked and corrected. Equip us in your righteousness for every good work set before us. I pray this through the saving and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, this passage, we see Jesus step into places that many may not go, but it's his perfect timing with which he does this, right? His perfect purposes. he heads south from Galilee to Jerusalem. If you know that region of the world, Galilee is, it kind of goes, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, Jerusalem, that area. So he's up in Galilee, his hometown, and he's going to head south to Jerusalem. But in these moments, it points out how it would seem that they, the religious leaders and many people, are missing the point arguing over the minutia, focusing on perceived external obedience, judging by those things. Well, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be a good Jew. And missing the heart. Missing the heart. Not seeing the heart behind it all. This isn't the only place that we see this. This isn't the only time that we see this unfold. It's illustrated in other places, and and it culminates, this passage culminates in this idea. In Matthew 9, 9 through 13, we read the story uh, when Jesus goes and calls Matthew, the tax collector, to him. He goes and he, he calls Matthew to be his disciples, and the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, they were incensed, they were offended that Jesus would spend time with this one who who was part of the Roman Empire, that he would associate with this person and these people. But Jesus sees their heart and he says, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is, in essence, where this passage is heading. And however, to get there, I wanna simply walk through the story with you this morning, drawing attention to key points as Again, we look to understand, we look to learn, and even more, apply to our hearts what the Lord might have for you. What the Lord might have for you individually, but also as a church, corporately, as a community. And as our passage begins, again, I said he was up north. He was at his to- hometown of, of Nazareth with his family ministering around Galilee because he knew that the leaders of Judea, the leaders of Jerusalem south of Samaria, are, wanted to kill him. Well, we come to the point in the story where there's uh, one of the three biggest festivals for the Jewish people. They had three big festivals in their calendar year it was this one, the, the Festival of Booths or the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Passover, and Pentecost. Those were the three big pilgrimage festivals. So these were the parties or the feasts that people from all around the region would travel to Jerusalem to join together as a people. A lot of the other uh, celebrations and things in the county or they would just do at their hometowns, but these ones, they would, they would in large groups, travel to Jerusalem and now we may think that the Passover was the greatest feast because we're post uh, the cross, right? We're, we, we see that Jesus links his, his death and resurrection to the Passover. So we might think that that was the biggest feast. But this one was the biggest feast for the Israelites. This one was uh, the biggest party of the year. And why? It was because it was at the end of the harvest. So they had just put in, in an agri- agrarian society, they just put in... a a lot of work to plant and till and water and care for. Now their storehouses were full. Now was the time to celebrate the bounty with which God had blessed him with. The other aspect of the festival was the fact, that it was called the festival of booths or, or tabernacles because it was meant to remind the Israelites of their, the, their forefathers who wandered through the wilderness they didn't have homes to go to. They lived in tents in the wilderness. They, they left Egypt, spent 40 years living in tents until they landed in Canaan. And so in essence, it was, it was a big camp out around Jerusalem. Everybody would descend upon Jerusalem and they would set up tents and they would camp out. Even the people that lived in Jerusalem would move out of their house and whether on the front porch or the back, they would live in tents also. So they would take this time to remember who they were. But Jesus says here that this is not the right time for me. This is not why I have come, to celebrate the harvest. He came to give his life as a Passover lamb to provide atonement, covering, and forgiveness. But his family still doesn't see that. His family still doesn't understand that. And so they encourage him, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. You need to show these acts, these things, these miracles he was doing to the world, to the public. But what seems weird in this passage, if you were listening or you're reading or you're following along, is they they tell him to go and show these miracles that they're seeing to the people of Israel. Yet verse five says, his own brothers didn't believe in him. What? They just told him to go and show these miracles, but they don't believe in him. Don't skim past the remarkability of that sentence. This one sentence, his very brothers grew up with Jesus, spent their entire lives in close proximity with Jesus, clearly had seen him perform miracles, yet they missed it. They missed the gospel of why he came. And I wonder how many of us know the stories, know the Christmas story, know the Easter story, know these things, and yet miss the power of the gospel. If it was possible for the very brothers of Jesus, it is definitely possible. For us, see what they missed was they were looking for a different means to the end that they think he came for. They were looking for power, they were looking for a messiah who would use his works, use his miracle, use his power for fame, for show, to buck off the oppressive, pluralistic, secular rule of the Romans. And they missed the suffering lamb who would have to give his life in order to bring a different type of freedom. One commentator even wrote the fact that they thought they were on his team, but Jesus knew their agenda was not the same as his agenda. Do we think sometimes we're on his team and yet our agenda looks different than the suffering servant? So Jesus says, I'm I'm not going up the way that you want me to go. I'm not going for human approval. I'm not going after human praise. I'm not going for marketing and branding so that people will like me. I'm going to save people who don't realize they need saving. And I think that's a question for us as well. What kind of church do you want to be? One that people know the name of North Cross or the name of Jesus? They sought worldly methods, worldly means to bring the change they believed the Jewish people needed. And and I would draw your attention to verse seven. He says this, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And what I, why I draw your attention to that verse, because I think too, we can also, it, it, it can be possible for us to, to interpret the world as those people out there. And Jesus does in chapter six, just before this passage, he's talking about the world out there. That the gospel will offend people, not us, the gospel, because it says you're not as good as you think you are. That's offensive in our world, right? And there's only one way to have relationship with God. So chapter six, he does talk about the world out there, but what's interesting in this passage, he's talking to the people of Jerusalem when he says this line. He's talking to the very city that was the temple where the people of God, the heart city, When he uses this word, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. I think what we see in this verse is Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. The world certainly includes the Gentiles, yet it can also include us when we begin to outwardly celebrate and not wrestle with our own hearts how we need Jesus. Are we willing to look at our own hearts? Willing to wrestle with uh, the, the the ways in which we focus on what we think the church needs, we think Christ needs, and we just need Jesus, and the world just needs Jesus. What intrigues me in this passage is I was, I was studying and praying through it and preparing and reading. Uh, ten, I read about 10 commentaries that and, and only one said that this verse, this, this passage where Jesus is talking to his brothers uh, has no application for this day. All the other ones were, were making the case and drawing connections to us, to the church. And, and they asked the question, what would he testify against us? I think that's a profound question for us to wrestle with what would he testify against us? One commentator even went so far as to say, we would be naive to think that we cannot be counted among the temple authorities. And I know I'm meddling. I know I might be pushing on some things here. I mean, the guest preacher is not supposed to meddle, right? But I think it's worth us asking Checking our hearts in this passage. Some may be sitting and saying, yes, the world needs to be offended by the gospel. Yes, they out there need to know their sin. But forgetting that we ourselves are sinners broken in need of a savior. And yet maybe we're on the other side. Maybe you're an individual who said, yeah, the the church needs needs to, to be blasted a little bit missing that we all need Jesus. We all are either Gentiles or Pharisees in need of a savior. Jesus tells this other story in Luke 15, uh, which you may be really familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. And it's the story of a father who has two sons, right? And and the youngest goes off and, and lives the life the way that he wants and the older brother stays back. The, the younger brother has outward rebellion, outward rejection of the father. The, the older just keeps it inside. The older just internalizes it and judges the younger brother and judges the father for what he's doing. We all are either younger brothers or older brothers. But as I quoted Hebrews ten fourteen, we have been made perfect but we are still being made perfect. Older brothers are still gonna have some older brother tendencies. Younger brothers are still gonna have some younger brother tendencies. But every person in here listening who has set their hope, their trust, their faith in Jesus, you're in the middle of your sanctification process, but he's already seen the end that he's bringing you to. Christ does transform us and free us, but we have nothing to boast upon. So when Jesus in chapter six calls out the world out there and in chapter seven calls out the world in here, his whole point is we have nothing to boast upon except the work of Christ. And that is freeing when we begin to understand and apply that to our hearts. So his brothers go. He says, I'm not going with you. And his brothers go down to Jerusalem and they they travel with a whole group of people from Galilee. And Jesus says this, I'm I'm not gonna go with a large group of people. He saved that for the triumphant entry, right? When we celebrated Palm Sunday, maybe three, four weeks, three weeks ago, I think. Um, He saved that big group traveling for that entry point. He waits to go. He goes in, in secret, quietly hiding. And people are looking for him, right? People are murmuring. People are whispering. Oh, I, I've heard he's a really, he's a good man. People are whispering, no, 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 he's the opposite. He deceives people. He leads them astray. And, and, and what I find interesting in this part of the story is that in all of it, they're whispering, it says, because of the fear of the Jewish leaders. The leaders had done a good job of creating a culture of fear to maintain control and power. And I again just think, are we humans in the 21st century much different? Can we not see cultures and nations and businesses and and, and even churches where such postures, maybe not intentionally or willfully, but can be a curse for the people? So Jesus goes in secret and he shows up at the temple and he shows up not the way that his brothers want. Again, his brothers want him to show up performing miracles. He shows up and he's just teaching. He shows up to teach in these moments. And we find him being judged on two different accounts. We find the people then, because he's made himself known, made himself public, they begin to judge him and and challenge him on two different accounts. And first, what they do is they, they are weighing up his teaching. They're challenging his teaching, critiquing whether he was sent by God or not. What school did you study at again? What credentials do you have to teach the people? See, his brothers were concerned with his branding, with his, with his fame, with the, the, the power that he would bring. And now the leaders and the people are concerned with what authority he has to speak. They're, they're, they're questioning. They, I think in it, we see a glimpse because we see multiple times where they try and trap Jesus by certain questions. I think this is yet just another way to trap Jesus. To say, well, you, you really don't have authority. They didn't like the message that he was saying. And so they said, well, you, you don't have the authority to teach because you didn't stutter, study under any of the greats. Many had already, in essence, settled in their minds that there are certain things that they do not want God to be saying to them. And again, we lay our hearts at the altar at the cross. Lord, what am I struggling to hear you say to me? The second judgment that they have against him is the healing that he performs. So if back in chapter 5, that's what he's referring to in verse 21 when he says, I did one miracle and you're all amazed. Back in chapter 5, he, he's at the pool of Bethesda and, and there's this man who can't get in the water. And so he says, and this is, on the, this is on the Sabbath, this is a Saturday, a day where they had a lot of laws saying there were things that you couldn't do. And he says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk, you're healed. And they said, ah, we got him. We got him on a technicality. He's a lawbreaker because they had a law that you couldn't pick up your mat and walk because that's work. And so when you hear the word lawbreaker, when you hear that and and they're challenging him because he broke the law on the Sabbath, the other word that you can hear in the background is sinner, sinner. Now, oh, see, he's not as perfect as he makes himself out to be. So they catch him on a technicality. They catch him on a minor. And they miss the whole healing that he brought to this one person who had no hope, zero hope in a culture that looked far down upon the lame and the broken and the hurting. That's what he says here when he calls them out with uh, the circumcision passage. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. In order to follow the law that's given to you in Genesis 17, 12, you will work, circumcise a child on the eighth day, if it happens to fall on the Sabbath. Jesus is calling out their inconsistency the way they were using certain aspects of the law to assure themselves that they really were God's people, even if, in fact, they broke other aspects of it. Is that applicable for us? Where in my heart do I feel good about the things that I do, but I miss the ways in which I'm inconsistent and the ways in which I willingly give in to my sin. They were hanging on to a false legalism when the Sabbath was meant to bring the well-being of God's people. They were judging his law-breaking blind to their own. I think, too, we have application here in Romans 14 and 15. You read these passages where Paul is writing to the Romans and trying to apply the gospel into this very thing, and and he talks about uh, eating meat offered to idols is a sin to some and not to others. Drinking wine is a sin to some and a sin and not a sin to others. Well, so I, I I thought sin was sin, right? Yes, but it's deeper in some things. Paul's trying to take the words of Jesus and applying to our hearts and saying. How are our hearts in this? In England, there was a story back in February in Oxfordshire, Oxfordshire county uh, about the the county council was trying to pass a law where any public event that they had, uh, they they. Um, they were voting to ban meat and only serve vegan food at all their events. And if you're a fan of Top Gear, you know who Jeremy Clarkson is. And, and he was speaking out about this and saying that this is absurd, like that the, the council should not be dictating such a thing. And, and you might in this moment go, yeah, that's crazy. Like, what? They, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be dictating something like that. And that's ultimately, though, falling prey, again, in our own hearts, what Paul is tackling here, what Christ is tackling here. And where are our hearts? Are we quick to judge by mere appearances and miss the deeper? That's where Jesus lands in all of this, at least for now in our passage today. He calls out the leader's hidden motives of trying to kill him. He calls out their pretentious legalism. And he lands with this powerful sentence, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge rightly or correctly. When he talks about appearances, the equivalent for that word is our word superficially. Something that occurs or exists on the surface. Synonyms can include cursory and frivolous, perfunctory, trivial. And one pastor at our church who recently retired, his, his, one of his favorite words was peccadillos. Not picadillos. that's a type of Mexican meal, but peccadillos. And that's what he's talking about. Stop judging peccadillos, which means small, relatively unimportant offenses, but instead judge correctly. And later Jesus would drive to the heart drive to our hearts, drive to our desires, drive to the call for the bride of Christ to say, let's not look at outward appearances, but where are our hearts? But What's powerful in all of this, we know how this story ends. We celebrated a couple weeks ago at Easter, right? Good Friday and, and, and that holy week. We know that even in in the face of such rejection, even in the face of such criticism, of, of such judgment, such opposition, Jesus is still driving for the hearts of people. Rather than being rash to judgment, rather than giving up, he says, I'm still coming for you. He's willing to call us out, willing to challenge us, but he still doesn't give up on us. That's powerful. That's comforting. That's amazing that Jesus doesn't quit. Here, he keeps going, keeps pursuing to the cross, even to the point where the ones that were crucifying him and judging him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He keeps chasing his flock. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He writes, the world, of course, doesn't enjoy being told that it's radically out of line. Verse 7 but it cannot at the moment see that the doctor who is diagnosing the disease is also about to provide the remedy. The one who knows the real disease and is willing to call it out is also the one who's going to provide the remedy, the healing that we need. Here in that, it's, it's the undertaker who is, puts you in the ground, but is also the one who can call you back out of it. So today, may we put our trust and our hope in him, the one who didn't give up, the one who welcomed, running to meet the younger brother, welcoming in the, to the feast the older brother. May we lay our hearts before the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that he needs to do individually and corporately. Say, Lord, show me where I'm judging peccadillos, but not in my own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you would so love the world that you would send your son to do what we couldn't, to live a perfect life and to die the death that we deserve and to be raised from the dead so that we may have life and we may sing yet not I but Christ through me. Lord, we we can lay our hearts before you because they're forgiven hearts. And so I pray that you would do the work that you need to do in our hearts, in our minds, with our loves and desires and actions to walk the same road you walked, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.